This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. I have been sharing with a group over the last few months um, about some of our conversations and my excitement at um, being in the midst of fellow teachers, Dharma practitioners, and being able to um, speak about the Dharma and, and learn about our different traditions and um, you know just the different ways in which we, we uh, take in and then express the teachings. And so I had for some time been wanting to share that in, in different ways with the group. And so I thought I would start doing this, right? Inviting fellow teachers to, to join us, share a practice with us, and then have a conversation. And so I, I, I want to come back to that practice because there's so many things in it. Uh, so, so I'd love to come back to it. But if, if we could start, if you could share a little bit with us your path, how do you become Yeshe and Zopa? How did you meet? And what is it like, you know, to be able to, in the context of your marriage, um, be able to share um, and teach the Dharma? So if you can let us, if you can tell us a little bit about, about your story. Sure, I guess I'll start. I, um, I was uh, very interested in lots of brainy kinds of things when I was growing up. I was a biology student and really loved science and um, was in graduate school heading towards a doctorate in biology, but decided that that didn't quite work for me uh, and decided to go to law school. And I did that. And I did a lot of intellectual property and insurance and health law because it combined those two fields. And, you know, I would say that I came to Dharma because all of these things that I was told when I was growing up, I'm, I'm a first generation Latinx American um, person. Uh, and my family emigrated from Cuba. My parents emigrated from Cuba when um, Castro took power very soon after he took power before the very large wave of exiles. But there was a real focus on success and striving and hitting that American dream. It was a very big part of the immigrant experience for me growing up. And I felt like I'd done all those things. I checked all those boxes and there wasn't much happiness in sight <laughs> that I was told to expect from that. There was, uh, there was some contentment, of course, and there were some good things about it, but it seemed that all of the contentment and success brought with it new kinds of ways to be uncomfortable and discontent in addition to the ones that were there. So I started to explore meditation and eventually Dharma. Um, the Tibetan Buddha Dharma was particularly compelling to me because I felt that 
it both uh, hit the strengths of the intellectual curiosity that was always a part of my life and also provided a much more experiential basis for meditation. So it was a very good marriage of theory and practice that I hadn't found before. It was very one-sided for me in life. And having that combination was really compelling for me. It was something I really enjoyed doing and wanted to do more of. So I decided to, I had the opportunity actually to leave work on good conditions and go and spend a year or two in Asia and study at this fancy monastery in Nepal where I could uh, get really in depth in the teachings. And so I did that. It's Pulahari Monastery uh, near Kathmandu. And um, I met Zopa there. Uh, he had already been going for about a year. And we uh, ended up studying and practicing there for several years. We were living in Asia between Nepal and India. Our root guru is Bokar Rinpoche, whose monastery is in Northeast India. So we spent a lot of time there studying and practicing, learning Tibetan language, being trained as translators. Uh, and then eventually, uh, started to divide our time between the US and Asia uh, and prepare for um, the traditional three-year retreat, which in our lineage is uh, the training. It's one of the ways, not the only way, but it's one of the ways that people become authorized teachers. Um, and it's one of the few ways to become a Lama, which is a title which generally means teacher, but literally means highest mother. It's meant to be a very nourishing kind of role that we play with our students. So that's the general outline for me. Do you wanna say Can a little? Can I just ask a quick question? When you say fancy monastery, <laughs> what do you mean? Because that's not my experience of monastery life. Yeah, that's that's a perfect question because when I started out, I, I was raised, my, my family was, my mother is Protestant and my father was Catholic, and but my mother wasn't very observant and my father was. So I felt like I was raised very Catholic. I went to Catholic school, I went to the churches. And when I was looking for a Dharma center, I was avoiding those Tibetan centers <laughs> because they looked too Catholic to me, the, all the incense and the chanting and the the colors and I was all for that nice Zen aesthetic, which is not fancy. Um, but uh, the Tibetan Dharma centers are extremely colorful. It's an explosion of almost chaotic <laughs> sensory experience. And the monastery, Pulahari, that I eventually went to, is very much in that line. It's very elaborate. There's gilded statues and um, very elaborate tapestries or tankas and different um, techniques, either painted or um, embroidery. It's, it's fancy in, the, in, in a way that's almost opposite to the, I think, absolutely elegant, beautiful simplicity of a Zen monastery. So it's a very different experience. And it's one of the ways that I think our traditions on the outside seem very different. But in my experience, I think the Zen tradition is probably closer to others to, than others to the Tibetan mm -hmm. outlook on Dharma, mm -hmm. despite the <laughs> radically different aesthetic. <laughs> but fancy doesn't mean like a lot of creature comforts. Like certainly when we were there, a lot of the time it was in the winter and there's no heating and the buildings are on the north side of the hill, <laughs> you know bathrooms outside, things like that. So 
not not fancy in the five star hotel kind of fancy. Right. And so, how about you, Zopa? Um, <clears throat> I I grew up in northern New Mexico in a spiritual community that was founded by a Western guy that kind of combined Christian mysticism and Buddhism and some other things. And uh, that teacher died when I was quite young. I don't have any memories of him, but the community stayed together. And then eventually uh, around the time that I was 12 or so, they got some of the people got involved in Tibetan Buddhism. And so I had some exposure to some Tibetan teachers. And I think there was a sense of curiosity because it seems like these teachers who didn't have a lot of the things very similar to what Yeshe was just mentioning didn't have a lot of the trappings that uh, society and schooling and all of these things were telling me were the way to go for happiness in life and yet they seemed a lot happier than a lot of the people that I knew so that was intriguing but and so I took refuge when I was a teenager, but I didn't really get involved real seriously until after I graduated from my undergrad studies uh, in California in <clears throat> 2000. And then I went on pilgrimage over to India, Nepal and Tibet. And that that really hooked me like uh, being in the, those cultures and seeing it permeate life and getting exposed to that uh, start, at least started to hook me. And then uh, in particular, going to this uh, program for uh, international students at Pulahari, where there was like in-depth daily study and practice of, of the Dharma and the philosophy behind it and getting some sense of like the graduated path of dharma kind of blew open my mind mm -hmm. so that really helped me and then the rest as, as Yeshe described I think uh, so we did our three-year retreat between 2013 and 2016 and and have continued to work with the monastery over over in Nepal uh, in fact we were just Yeshe was translating for some teachings there this morning so it's been a <laughs> A busy Dharma day today, which is great. And so, your your community is online, or do you also have in person? Our community here in the U.S. is what well, has been almost <clears throat> entirely in person until the pandemic, and then it's been online since then. Um, we're starting to see the. Um, we mostly work with individual centers, so we travel to different centers traditionally, and those would would have been in person. Uh, but so it kind of depends on each of the centers, whether they're ready to open up or are they're still doing things online. We've been doing things online um, when we initiate the teachings and the practices. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious what it's like, as I mentioned before, you know, to, to be teaching in the context of being a couple. You, you mentioned uh, when we had a conversation earlier on that that you had done this three-year retreat and that you were kind of looking forward to being separate and being individuals and that it ended up not being that. And so I'm curious what your experience of, of being a couple teaching is like. It's, it's, it's uh, 
wonderful opportunity, I think, in some ways, having, you know, having someone else to brainstorm with and to uh, work together with and planning the teachings and executing the teachings is, is lovely, it's great. Um, one of the things that we uh, often try to do too is just, uh, it seems like people get a lot out of seeing a Dharma couple or, or things like that. And so we, we have a lot of comments sometimes from people. And uh, it, I guess simply it's, it's just a pleasure. And of course, you know, there's always difficulties. It's not like it's perfect. <laughs> but uh, I think the fact that we both kind of had a parallel Dharma path and had, uh, you know, so much of the teachings and trainings together and trained in similar ways. And yet we're very different individuals. So having both the differences and the similarities is, is quite helpful. When you mentioned that people get a lot of seeing out of seeing, you know, you as a as a couple, I started nodding because I kind of I I feel that intuitively myself. But why do you think that is? What is it that people get? Frankly, there are not a lot of women up here, <laughs> and there are fewer women who are in um, long term committed relationships as part of their dharma path. And very often, men and women will just come up with tears in their eyes because it's it's such a big move for us in the West to have um, a different understanding of what authority is and who gets to speak. Mm. And I think that just the visual um, transmits that in ways that no amount of talking can do. And it really moves people to see such a dramatic change because this is a big uh, change that we're seeing in the West. Teachers like you and uh, other other women, transgender, um, BIPOC teachers. This is a huge shift, and people feel it from all walks of life. And you know, having that, uh, sitting and watching that happen <laughs> right before your eyes is something that really moves people in a very uh, a beautiful way. I'm, I'm, I'm often moved myself by the responses that people show. And I think it's also helpful that <clears throat> it's helpful for people to see reflected different lifestyles as a way of living the Dharma. Yeah. So, you know, and, and really going deep into the Dharma. I, I know for me, one of the things that I've loved about uh, you know our particular lineage of Tibetan Buddhism is that you know three of the the Tibetan forefathers of the lineage you know one was a householder trans translator farmer another was a yogi uh, in the mountains and and his heart son was a monk you know so they all had very different paths very different ways of being in the world. And yet they all uh, experienced awakening and carried the Dharma teachings to many millions of beings now. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I find really um, that resonates on, on an extra scale, so to speak, is that you know there's something about marriage, which itself is a container 
It's a structure within which we can find a lot of freedom and we can actually find uh, supports for delving deep into areas that maybe we don't do if we're on our own. And that's very much the style of practice that we learned in, in Tibetan Buddhism. There's this sense of um, using structure as a platform for freedom as in, instead of something that's confining. So for example, this three-year retreat, the cloister experience, it's completely cloistered. You don't have access to phones or internet or news. We get correspondence once a month. Uh, nobody comes into the retreat unless they're a part of it. Um, we don't leave. And it's cloistered in that way for three years and six weeks. Uh, and that in and of itself it was just incredible how much, how freeing <laughs> something that when I first heard of it, I thought that was just insane. I mean, why would anybody do such a thing? But it turns out that it's so freeing. And there's something about the monastic quality of life that brings that structure and freedom, which is very much a part of how the Dharma spread in Asia, which is not really likely to happen so much as a, as a main thread in the West. That's not a main a way that, is, that it's manifesting. But I do think that there are ways that, be it a marriage or other contemplative lifestyles, lay people can have a, a sense of that structure and freedom in, in their own individual lives. Mm -hmm. And I wonder also, having been married myself in the past, um, you know, the, the grounding quality of it. Um, you know, where your partner is just not impressed at all. The <laughs> <laughs> student might be, right? Like, honey, <laughs> I, I remember Pema Chodron saying, you know, she was trying to do the Pema thing on her daughter and her daughter being like, mom, no, it, it doesn't work. So um, I think in a, in, a, in a very nice way, it can be very grounding, right? Very humble. Yeah. It keeps you honest. <laughs> Exactly. It definitely does. And, and, it, and, you know, there's a lot of shortcuts. We all know what that's like in, in relationships that are really resonating well. There's a lot of things that I don't, you know, I can say in two or three words to Zopa that would take me half an hour to explain to anybody else and vice versa. So that's also a, a really rich way of being able to, um, to know each other. And there's a quality of just wit somebody witnessing your life that you get in any kind of uh, long-term relationship or marriage or family or friendship um, that's really valuable. That's, that's also that grounding quality of knowing that someone's a witness to the things that you go through in life is, I find something really powerful in that. Yeah, and the potential, right? So, so people see you as a couple completely immersed in the dharma and thinking oh okay so perhaps i can do that this is possible and it's not possible not just possible but it's doable uh, so yeah i mean i think there's a reason why we were born westerners <laughs> and ended up in the dharma and at at the same time that i feel like the way we practice and teach the dharma is still very asian centered it's not as mainstream as a lot of Dharma centers in the West. At the same time, uh, it's really important for other Westerners to have models of how to live the Dharma in lots of different ways. Uh, 
Uh, so this is one possibility that we put out there for people. And I, I think of that as a practice in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, so do you mind if we, if we turn a little bit to, to Dharma directly? Sure. Um, I, you know, so I was, as I was taking in, you know, the, the instructions, you know, for, for the practice. And then as I was doing it myself, I mean, a number of things came, came up. Um, one of the things as you were giving the instructions or, or the, the setup, Yeshe, as you were beginning, you know, this concept of meditative inquiry, um, as you probably know, so at the, the heart of um, a particular kind of practice in Zen is koan study. Koan introspection is one way that we, that we call it. Mm -hmm. And that is um, being able to hold a, a question, a situation, a query in your mind without turning it intellectually. And so when you're saying is, you know, that, that what comes up, what you feel, and there's this element of tension, right? Because there's doubt and there's the, the, the aspect of your mind that just wants to jump to the answer, just wants to see, just wants to wrap it up. And if you can, if you can hold that tension, then with that, with with a doubt, and then the faith, right, the trust that you can see more clearly, that you can um, access uh, a depth that is otherwise, you know, it just kind of passes us by when we're just um, stuck, right, in the discursive mind. And so I'm, I'm curious how, if, if this is at all akin to how you understand this, this inquiry or if there are aspects of it that are different? I think there's a lot of resonance there because uh, it's, it really isn't meant to be analytical. It's, it, part of what's interesting about it is that it, this is the third of a threefold practice. <laughs> so it's listening, contemplating and meditating. And the meditating is this meditative inquiry where we're doing this experiential analysis and resting, alternating between those two. But the idea is that we would have uh, listened to teachings on whatever the particular topic is or a colon or whatever it might be. And then actually did spend time on that intellectual thinking off the cushion. And that might be discussions. It might be making outlines. It might be making images. I have a friend who loves to make um, Dharma teachings into songs. She rewrites the lyrics of popular songs into Dharma teachings. And um, there's lots of creative ways that the contemplative piece, the, the, the piece of the intellectual piece works out. And the idea is that we use mind's inherent creativity to bring out, to draw out that intellectual understanding. But there's always that understanding that there's a gap that we can't just stay with that intellectual understanding. And that there's, I like to think of it as like a synapse between neurons, there's that space and you have, you're, you're at this neuron, you have to get to that neuron, how are you gonna bridge that synapse? And it's similar to that, there's that intellectual understanding and we're trying to get to a, an experiential understanding very much the way you talked about it. I love that sense of introspection because it is very much, it's very slow. It's not the discursive quality of the thinking, 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 and what about this and what about that? It's not as busy as that. And it is very heart-centered. It really is one of the ways I explain it is like you're kind of looking around, you're groping around in the dark to find something you misplaced instead of uh, when I got here, I sat down, I put it down there, and then the other person came and you're trying to like trace your steps 
abstractly in your head, as opposed to really getting in there and experiencing, getting your hands dirty, basically. So it's a lot more experiential, which is uh, which I'm hearing you describe in that koan introspection, and that there's something about that tension about staying with our discomfort. And also when this meditative inquiry is developed even further, there's even a sense of dialogue from the listening and the contemplating. You have a sense of what the Buddha has to say about you know, whatever given topic it might be, let's say death, because that's what Zopa was doing. And you're having this inner dialogue. Well, you know, Buddha Shakyamuni, I'm not so sure about those hell realms. <laughs> and But to, in order to have that inner dialogue, you had to have processed some of the teachings to know what the content of those teachings are. And then you're sitting in that tension of uh, not knowing what to make of it and having that inner dialogue that allows you to get closer and closer to a hard experience that you couldn't necessarily put into words. And that's what's actually going to bridge that synapse, get across that gap from words and concepts to experience. And so you're saying that you're sitting there and you're actually talking to the Buddha in your mind. In a way, but it's much more, it's not like we're talking right now, which is a lot of very bouncy back and forth kind of thing. It's more, I, I think of it as more like, you know, those old time like novels where somebody writes a letter and posts it and it gets to the other person <laughs> days later, they write back and then you sit and listen. So there's those pauses, those meaningful pauses in between where you're really sitting with the experience and the question, just that quality of questioning in and of itself becomes part of the practice. So it, it isn't a, a dialogue the way we normally think of it. It's much mm-hmm. slower and um, has a, you know, a very sort of steady stream that is more than just the one meditation session. It's going to go across sessions and weeks and months, maybe even years for some topics. Uh, I I have a million questions, but I actually wanted to to give people a chance to, because it is such a different practice from what we're used to. Certainly contemplating our death, a little bit, though we do work with the five remembrances, but certainly contemplating our rebirth, contemplating the hell realms, the lower realms in general. So I'm curious if people have reactions, comments, questions, how, how was that practice for you? And we don't at all mind if people really heated it (laughs) we definitely were we were also trained in like the monastic college system of debate a bit where you have to like defend different viewpoints even viewpoints that you don't necessarily believe (laughs) and you know it's quite uh again from the outside it can feel quite combative but it's it's really meant just to like not so mm, so harshly solidify it being on one side or another and identifying with it. So, yeah. so I think Colette has a hint. Yeah, Jitsuko. Um, thank you for the teachings that you gave us. And um, I really um, did not really um, connect very well with um, the first two, but then the last one really it led me nicely 
um, to a sense of gratitude um, for this life. Um, uh, the last, the last one really led me to a sense of gratitude. Um, so that felt great. Um, but I, I did have some real issues with the one about, um, you know, contemplating like the hell realms and contemplating my actions and then just how, 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 how does that help us not look at people that have bad karma in this life and, and think poorly of them? Because it seems like this could really set a person up for um, thinking poorly about themselves or looking at another situation and, and not having compassion, but um, saying, well, you know, they brought that on themselves with their negative actions. And that's why they're experiencing such and such is because of their negative actions. And um, it can seem like really judgy. Um, that's all. Grace, sure. I, I think that's such an important point because especially around the teachings on karma, this kind of thing often comes up, right? How is it not victim blaming, right? Oh, they deserve it, right? Whereas, and, and this, I, I think in some ways, this is part of what we have to wrestle with because, simply because of our, you know, our cultural inheritance, even if we didn't grow up Christian or, you know, but growing up in this culture, I think there is some sense of like, oh, they're being punished. They deserve it. They did something to deserve it. Whereas from my understanding of the Buddhist teachings on karma, it's much more an explanation of a, a natural law of cause and effect that helps us understand why things are the way they are, even though we, and all of that's embraced in the recognition that all beings simply want happiness and want to be free of suffering, right? So that's really the, the foundational groundwork that it's held in, that the teachings on karma are given in, is, is that recognition that like, just as I want happiness and don't want ever to suffer, that's the same for all beings. And just as that's not what I'm experiencing, right? <laughs> what, if that's the case, then why, why do I keep encountering suffering time and time again, right? It's, it's because our actions and our intentions are at cross purposes. Right. We want happiness, but yet somehow our actions are keep producing discontent, dukkha, suffering in various different forms, right? And so the more that we can identify that with ourselves and recognize that's true for all beings, then it's not so much a sense of like, oh, well, I'm better than them because I'm human or I had this good, but more a sense of, just like you were saying towards the end, that sense of like, oh, wow, this is a rare opportunity and it's impermanent, right? It's not like it's a me that I that lasts continually that I that's guaranteed to be in this opportunity, right? Then we get more of a sense of the vulnerability that we're all in of this vulnerable situation and how, how wonderful it would be for us to not only help ourselves, but help all beings. But I think it's a beautiful question. 
It is. And you know, different Tibetan traditions, there's four major lineages and <clears throat> different lineages will treat Buddha nature in different ways. But the Kagyu lineage uh, really foregrounds that. And your question really hits that on the spot. Because when we look at, to, to, to use your phrasing, which I think is spot on, when we look at other people and they're engaged in, they're actively engaged in wrongdoing. Putin killing tons of people in Ukraine, or they're in the middle of a lot of suffering. When we look at it through the lens of Buddha nature, their nature is to be completely free of suffering, completely mm -hmm. kind, loving, wise, gentle. And this is what they get. So if anything, it just heightens the compassion. And it, it, it sometimes is described as unbearable compassion mm. because it's so intense to see that someone whose nature is to be in perfect bliss uh -huh. is struggling in this way. So it's actually something that can be a spur to compassion. And, you know, this Zopa chose these um, particular prompts that are very traditional because they point back to the first two parts of these of this practice, the listening and the contemplating. Some of that doesn't make a lot of sense without all of the details that, that would normally come ahead, but it, it demonstrates how the practice works, where the, the meditative inquiry will point you to other things to learn about. And even those practices, we can, we can relate to what it feels like when we're under the domination of being angry and how horrible that feels. Or there's a lot of ways we can extrapolate in our own lives to what these negative rebirths might be. And those can actually be used to make our gratitude for this life even stronger, however strong our gratitude is. When we have something as dramatic as that to give us a contrast, then that stokes it even further. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Wonderful question. Yeah, that was pretty very much the, the, the sense that I kept getting as I sat with this. And I just earlier today, I was writing about urgency and the, the vulnerability you know, of a human life. I, I've always, for some reason, felt that very keenly. And this, this um, practice, it just, it just makes me think again, th there really is no time to waste. You know, what am I doing when I'm wasting my time? You know, I have no time to waste. So in that way, I find it very powerful. Um, and that's the, real, that's the real point of the meditation, <laughs> right? I that's mean, it, it, can, it does call, it can call up sorrow or fear. And, and those things aren't, necessarily the point but they can help hone our focus to exactly what you're saying so you say this the sense of like wow there is no time to waste and ironically paradoxically what usually ends up happening is we have more enjoyment more appreciation of this life than when we try not to look at those things and you hit it on the head it's the point of the practice is to give you that experience you had instead of me saying you know, you should really not waste your time. I could sit here for hours <laughs> and you wouldn't have as powerful an experience as when you develop that from your heart. <clears throat> I see a bunch of other hands. Yes, Colette, did, did you want to go ahead? Thank you. Um, I found your contemplation on death absolutely spot on. I belong to a group of um, other Buddhists and our, the name of our group is 
aging and Buddhism. And this week we actually start teaching on uh, Maranasati, which is um, the contemplation of death. And a lot of people are afraid because it sounds morbid, but it's extremely freeing, liberating and crystallizing in making you aware that yes, now is the moment to be alive, to embrace everything and to live with the compassion and the love and the wisdom as much as you can, because you are one breath away from kaput, right? So it was really nice that you brought that in and I really cherished it. And I think it's vital, even though it's, uh, unsettling for a lot of people because death is you don't want to talk about it so i just want to thank you for that very much thank you well thank you colette and also you know <clears throat> part of what it makes me think about is is how how important it is you know because we're all going to die no matter what if we think about death if we don't think about death if we avoid it you know so it's not it's not like it's a remedy for dying <laughs> but it's a remedy for dying unprepared right and whether or not we believe in past and future lives nevertheless the more even if we don't believe in future lives if we if we don't think anything happens still there's an immense amount of suffering at the time of death that I genuinely believe is alleviated simply by having cultivated our awareness that we are going to die. So I think it's it's very helpful. And we see that in among non-Buddhists all the time. People get a cancer diagnosis and some people plummet into despair, but there are folks who when faced with death actually start living their life even more fully. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you talk about, Colette, and that's the intent of this meditation to really help us. One of the other things that I find it does is it holds a mirror up to the very petty things we, we engage in in life, the little arguments and the resentments that we, we hold on to. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, why am I doing that? <laughs> you know, when we're faced with something as uh, inevitable and as huge as our own mortality, it puts everything into perspective. And it also made quite stark the, you know, the choices that we make, right? What am I choosing to spend my time and energy and resources on? Are those things really important? Um, no matter how much money I make, no matter how many things I accumulate, I'm still going to die. Nothing, as you said, Zopa, not, none of that is going to save me from death. And so what is actually the most relevant thing for me to be putting my attention on mm. right it also um, brought that very keenly you know to to mm. mind for me yeah. yeah that's definitely a major again another of the major points of the contemplation fear does come up it can come up uh, but in the traditional teachings it's called a wholesome fear because there's a point to it it's not like if you just think oh i'm gonna die and you're afraid that by itself is there's not much point to it because it doesn't keep death from happening it doesn't make you necessarily happier now but when we start cultivating the entire understanding as you're saying the choices that we make now how am i living my life now as opposed to how i would live if i knew i had a month to live what would be different what choices would shift 
where can I loosen the grip of my attachment to things and my aversion to things, the apathy I have to most everything else? Uh, and how can I be more engaged in, uh, in my own life? Uh, Marguerite? I do want to say ditto to all of those things. And I want to say too that I, I wish I wasn't 76 years old. I wish I was 56 years old. However, I'm going to make the most of today, tonight, and tomorrow. And I thought, now where can I go and volunteer? And then I thought, and where can I spend my money? I can't wait to spend my money. Where am I going to spend it? I think I will go to my, my daughter asked me to go to her bachelorette party in texas and i'm in buffalo and i thought oh i'm not going to do that well i'm going to go to texas and i'm going to be at her bachelorette party and i just thought what else can i do i mean how can i go at it uh so i got motivated but i i i mean i wasn't i still got afraid and then i thought of all those animals and thought what the hell did they do in a previous life how did they get to be rats and bugs and lions and then I thought, I'm certainly going to not step on an ant. I'm going to be more sacred to sentient beings. So I really got to focus on that. And um, basically gratitude, a whole lot of it. I've all often had it, but I have more of it now. Then I saw you guys as spiritual partners. And Suize will know, I was going to go to the monastery just to look for a partner, just hunting out somebody. Is there anybody here that might want to be my spiritual <laughs> partner in life? And then I end up with a spiritual partner that I divorce. So go figure. And so I guess I'm just, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Life is giving me just what I need to learn and how fortunate I am. So those three, those three teachings just made sense. You know, that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Life is giving me what I need and I'm very fortunate. So thank you for bringing those to life in my life. Thank you. That's wonderful. And it sounds like you're seizing the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yep, mm -hmm. I am. Come That's to Buffalo. We can have a good time. <laughs> it looks cold there. I know, but there's lots of places to dance. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> um, Alexandra? How do I follow that? Um, <laughs> So for most of my life, I wanted to, I was close to death and I would have been grateful for it. Um, but now my life has changed such that I relish life and it has brought so much color to my life. That's the only way that I can kind of describe it. Um, and I hadn't really realized it till we did the first part of that is just how full it is for me and how grateful I am. And if I were to pass away, you know, in a couple of days, I could without, you know, regret. Um, the second part, all right, so I don't believe that we're gonna be reborn. <laughs> I just have to say it, it's something that, you know, however, I've been proven wrong many, many times. So just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I entertained um, that idea and, and I thought, you know what? Um, I reflected on my life. My life was the hellish, you know, realm. And then much of my life was that starving ghost, right? And then most of my life has been one of 
just dead fear all the time. So I realized, you know, I'm like well-suited if I'm, you know, reborn into those um, and there's a high probability. But then I thought, what do I do? Do I go into despair? And I thought, no, you know what? Um, all I could do is just enjoy every minute of my life for the rest of this time. I have no control over what happens when I die. None. I feel all I have control over is every minute from this moment forward. Um, and uh, I don't understand karma, but I do understand, you know, the, the need to, um, you know, be a better person. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just thank you. That was really, really good. I, I don't understand why people don't talk about death. Um, it's just as common as birth. <laughs> exactly. You Thank can't, you. you. You can't have one without the other, right? I mean, they're connected, right? And it, it is very funny that we value life and fear death, even though they're a continuum. The, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really lovely what you what you just said, that sharing about the various experiences that you can see in your own life that are metaphors for the various realms. Because honestly, without without some kind of background in karma and and positive rebirths, negative rebirths, all these realms. It's really elaborate. There's a, the Buddhist cosmology is pretty elaborate. And there's no requirement anywhere that we just hear it and say, okay, I'm going to sign up for that. Very much the opposite. We're meant to actually engage with it. And I wanted to pick up on something you said, which is until we are either interested in learning more about karma or other realms, a wonderful way to work with it is I always call it the what if meditation. <laughs> so we take it as a working hypothesis that I heard you say, just I mean, it's not going to kill anybody for the space of a meditation <laughs> to say, oh, okay, let's pretend this is how it is. How would that change my life? How would I, how would that um, have an impact on the choices I make on how, how I use my time, what I decide to do or not do. Um, and, you know, just very generally speaking, if uh, being a, a good person, which pretty much equates to virtuous karma, is going to help to set up a positive rebirth in this working hypothesis, then there you go. Because actually, when we think about it, we have precious little control over even this life. There are some things, very small things. <laughs> that we have some control over. But that underlying vulnerability of all beings is that at any moment, that what little control we have is pulled away or without any notice. So I, I feel like you really hit a lot of the main points without having to sign up for you know the full-on <laughs> uh, description of all the realms and the creatures and all these things. There's lots of different ways to engage with this that still allow us to connect with the Buddha and his teachings as he presented it. 
So there's a lot of talk about, well, the Buddha really didn't mean karma and rebirth. He didn't mean this or that. Nobody really knows what the Buddha meant. <laughs> but we know from very strong evidence over many, many countries in Asia that this is the way he chose to present it. He must have thought there was something of value. And whatever way we have that feels meaningful for us to connect with it, the way you described it is lovely. Just to say, okay, I'm going I'm to just wing it for the space of this meditation. That brings us a little closer to the Buddha's intention, to his idea for how to get the Dharma across to us. So whatever way we connect is a valuable one. And I think of that story in the sutras, and I, I don't have the source, unfortunately, but where the Buddha essentially says to someone, if you believe in rebirth, then good, you know, be good in this life so that you have a good rebirth. And if you don't believe in rebirth, well, be good in this life so that you can enjoy this life. Either way, you don't really lose. Just be good, period. Yeah. Uh, Nina? Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm joining on the phone and I really regret missing the practices. Um, but it's never too late for the present moment, the end of the your talk. Um, and I wanted to go back to a question, the question that Zoysia asked about um, the, dial, the dialogical quality um, you were referring to. And I, since I, I wasn't here, wasn't present virtually for the practices, I, I was interested in, I think it was the, not a, it's not a metaphor, but you said that it was like searching. Um, mm. Art center was like groping for something in the dark, but not in the, in an intellectual way. Of yeah. where was I when I dropped the car keys? Um, and and I wondered um, if somehow when when Zoe asked. Um, like you're in dialogue with the Buddha. Um, I, something sort of flashed into my mind or just an association that I don't know if others, you know, will, will have some recognition, but very often when I'm reading the sutras or the Dharma or even just opening up a, 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 some kind of, book even by you know Thich Nhat Hanh or somebody I, there's there's an asking of question of questioning almost like you would oracle asking a question knowing that there's no answer except what arises from that conversation with 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 the dharma and with the question itself. And I, I think you said something like um, sitting with it. I don't remember. I, I guess I'm just really curious whether that what, what I what I what resonated with me is is what is close to what you were describing. Yeah. So the, the full example that I use for for that experiential analysis is let's say you're in a hotel room. So if you've never been in this room before. It's your first night there. And in the middle of the night, the power goes out, the night lights are out, the clocks are out, it's pitch dark. So of course you've got glasses and you need to, to put on your glasses to try to make some sense of it. 
Uh, so you can lie there in bed completely still and say, oh, gosh, where are my glasses? Like, just like you said, I know that I was in the bathroom and I had them on there. And, and you're completely still. You're just almost not embodied. <laughs> you're just thinking entirely in your head. It's a total abstraction. You're imagining things as opposed to I have to find my glasses and now the fire alarm is going off and I better go find them. And you're groping around. So in that groping, there's a kind of physicality because you're using your senses, your touch and so forth. But there's also, oh no, this is paper. Oh no, this is, this is a book. Oh no, ah, glasses. So there's still an analytical quality that's happening with the subtle physicality. And that's the quality of the inquiry that's happening. It's not up here at all. It's really coming from the heart, really sort of leading with experience instead of leading with thought. And then when I talk about dialoguing with the Buddha, that's a common example in the way they present this teaching. But when you think about it from the perspective of Buddha nature, what is the Buddha? The Buddha is our own true nature of mind. What this practice is getting to is sitting still with the true nature of our own mind, with questions, open questions that spark our curiosity, our interest. And that's what invokes that precise knowing, the prajna which we don't necessarily activate very, very much in the context of Dharma. So the aim of the practice is to start bringing up that prajna in the context of Dharma. And, and, the, and the consummate example of this practice is, is meditation on emptiness, shunyata, because we're trying to uh, have an experiential understanding of non-self. And that happens through sitting with the qualities right in our mind and having our own curiosity, our own groping in the dark be what invokes that prajna. Now, as I mentioned before, it's connected to actually listening to teachings on non-self, for example, or death, as we did earlier, and really having thought about it for some time, having a clarity about what um, the teachings are saying, what that understanding is. And then we're actually sitting with that. So what we're actively dialoguing with is our own understanding that we developed while we were listening and contemplating. But what's happening under the surface is that we're tapping that bottomless well of infinite qualities of mind and invoking them. And as we invoke it and then we rest, we basically marinate in that experience, we're instilling it. We're getting it. The Tibetan word gom, which usually is translated as meditation, literally means to cultivate familiarity. We're getting familiar with the qualities of our own true nature of mind. And the more we do that, the more we habituate ourselves to that, the more accessible they are, the more there are immediate resource spontaneously without all of these steps. So they become, it becomes more and more the view that we take off the cushion and into life and so forth. So basically it's a practice for connecting with those qualities, instilling them and really incorporating them into our everyday life. Not only so we'll feel better because that's great, not only so that others will benefit from us because that's also great, but so we can uproot 
the misperception that is samsara and transcend to the point where we're accessible for all beings in the way that the mind of enlightenment is accessible for all. So the Tibetan Buddhist practice is very, very much foregrounds, not only the possibility, not only the capacity, but the inevitability of each and every being attaining enlightenment. And this is one of the ways that that happens. That's kind of the perfect closing, the <laughs> inevitability of enlightenment. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, we are we have run out of time. I just want to make sure if anybody else has any last minute thoughts or questions. Yes, Liz. Um, I'm thinking about um, the Buddha's awakening and his um, his seeing all his past lives at that time. How do you interpret that? I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever get to that place where I see all my <laughs> or my future lives. But how do you see that? I'm just curious. How do I understand that particular moment? You mean? Yes. Yeah, I have something. Do you want to say something first? I mean, <clears throat> I, I. No, I, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. I see that as the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and seeing his past and future lives and seeing the past and future lives of other beings, which is how he himself describes it in, in the suttas. So what I, what I understand that to mean is Buddhahood in, in our tradition is equated with omniscience, but not omniscience like we immediately hear omniscience and we're like, oh, give me the lottery numbers for next week because <laughs> you know everything, I wanna know those. But omniscience is very particular. It means understanding phenomena just as they are and in their full extent, understanding everything it takes to awaken because the Buddha, the name Buddha means awaken. So how I understand that is that the Buddha awakens to the full range of experience and all of the, in, in our tradition, we call them obscurations that cloud the ability of mind to know the full range of experience are completely lifted. They all fall away. But in that same sutta, when he's describing his enlightenment, probably the thing that moves me the most is his description after the enlightenment experience is over. He's wandering around in the trees of around the Bodhi tree in the forest. And he's reflecting on that experience. And what he says is, this peace so profound, this unpolluted, uncreated, clear light, this nectar-like dharma that I have found, to whomever I may teach it, it will remain an enigma. So I will remain silent and stay here alone in the forest. We always talk about the four truths as the Buddha's first teaching, and it's certainly his first public teaching, but to me, that's his first teaching. It's so subtle. It's so beyond concepts and words that even the Buddha doesn't know how in the world he's gonna get this across. So then he comes up with skillful methods. And I take everything that the various traditions in Asia of Buddhism tell us about the Buddha, his life and his teachings, 
as the skillful methods for us to encounter that unpolluted, uncreated clear light, the true nature of our mind. Now I'm wishing we had two more hours. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yeshe and Zopa. Thank you such, so much. Such a pleasure. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.